Hey everyone, welcome to episode 16 of the podcast. This time, SNL saxophonist Lenny Pickett enters the vibe chamber. But before that happens, I want to let you guys all know that this is a video podcast as well. The show is streamed live to YouTube right as it's happening. So if you want to see full archived episodes, clips from the show, or you want to see when I'm going to be live next, head over to youtube.com slash the vibe chamber. Anyway, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Lenny Pickett, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Where are you coming to us from right now? Uh, my apartment in Tribeca. Tribeca. But you're not, you're from New Mexico originally, right? I was born in New Mexico. But oh, I, okay. I very long. Okay. Well, what time, or how old were you when you, when you ended up moving? Did you, you went to California right from there, right? Yeah, my parents moved to California when I was two. Okay. And so you spent most of your childhood up until the point that you moved to New York and that was all in California? Pretty much in Berkeley and then for a few years in Bolinas, which is uh, West Marin County. Oh, okay. How old were you when you first started getting into music? Was sax your first instrument? Uh, no, I played clarinet from uh, the fourth grade. I was mm -hmm. nine. The typical... You know, they bring the instruments around to your classroom and show them to you, and you pick out what you want to play. That, that, was that anyone was, was anyone in your family a musician? Is that what inspired you? No, no. Um, I just liked music. I always liked music. I wanted to play an instrument when I was younger, and just couldn't convince anybody to let me do it until the school offered it. So once you started playing, even though your family wasn't really, you know, they weren't musicians, were they supportive of of your aspirations to be one? Um, well, I didn't really aspire to be a musician initially. It was just, uh, it was just something I enjoyed doing. Um, no, nobody was in support of me becoming a professional musician. Um, even when it looked like a likely poss possibility, people tried to talk me out of it. What, what do they want you to do? Oh, well, my father was a scientist, uh, he was a mathematician. He thought I would make a good scientist. And my mother just wanted me to have some gainful employment. Um, um, people, you know, she'd been married to a musician. Her, my, my stepfather, my mother's second husband was a jazz musician. And, you know, that's why I was indoctrinated into that fairly early. I knew what, what the life was like. And uh, anybody in their right mind would, would choose something else, I think. Um, Did you show any interest in science at any point? Oh yeah. Yeah, I did. But, um, uh, you know, I was curious about it. Um, but music was a necessity for me. Um, mm -hmm. or nothing else was, you know, I, I music made, you know, made everything work. I, I firmly believe that if you can do anything else besides, uh, be a professional musician, you should try that. Um, <laughs> If you, if you find that you're able to do something else, you should do that. Uh, uh, I, I can't recommend it to anybody. My father was like that because his family, uh, he, he always wanted to be a musician. He was in like punk rock bands and stuff in the 80s. And they were always hesitant about it. And he ended up becoming an electrician. And so for a huge part of my life, you know, there was that thing of my dad being like, oh, you should become a, an electrician. At one point he realized, you know, he's like, you know what? My family didn't give a shit about what I wanted to do. So I'm not going to, you know, do that to my kids. But there is a period of time where I'd considered wanting to be 
an electrician and now that i'm in jazz school i can say that that probably would have been a, a better decision what, what school are you going to i go to the new school in west village what's your instrument i play drums uh yeah okay. i took a i i had took a, a class i have another one uh from jeff countryman which yeah. he was on my podcast and so that's how i i met jeff was through the new school because he teaches a bunch of bunch of audio engineering classes and stuff like that a pod i think he teaches a podcast class which is ironic because i took that class before i started this podcast so mm -hmm. I'll, if i once i get the money rolling in i guess i owe jeff some money <laughs> uh, right right but so early on you said uh there was some jazz influence but what was what was the main thing that really made you want to play music was there a specific genre that you're like i gotta play this uh well, I, I was like my friends. It was the 60s. Um, I listened to Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton and all those people. But at the same time, that soul music was kind of important. Um, Stevie Wonder and um, Sly and the Family Stone and people mm -hmm. like that were around. Um, Sly, Sly was a local. Sly had a, was a DJ on the local soul radio station. Um, so he was sort of a, a presence in the Bay Area, and I, I was moved by his music. Um, so it was a combination of things. I, I don't really consider those things to all be that distinctly different. Uh, um, I know there are a million different categories now, but it, to me, it's all African diaspora, um, you know, musical influence music, um, music with a beat. And, and so when, because I actually, I heard you say before that you've always liked music that people can dance to. And now that, you know, because and that type of, the music that people dance to changes on basically a yearly basis. And now that you're working at a place like SNL, where there's a new musical guest every week, are you kind of, you're kind of forced now to hear what is up and coming and what's, what's current. Do you think that is kind of helps you to stay up to date on what, you know, the newest dance music is of, of the day for so long into your career? Uh, I like that aspect of the job. It does keep me current, though. I'm suspicious of what I'm seeing because it's uh, it's the things that are the most popular, and and the most mainstream. So I'm I I, I know I'm missing a lot. Um, there's mm -hmm. a but but I don't feel that bad about it. I we have interns, or we up until this season we had interns, and I'll ask the interns that you know who's this musical act, and they never heard of them sometimes. So there there's so many different. Um, genres and subgenres of music and there's you know artists come and go rather rapidly and and it's not like you know in the in the 60s uh everybody knew who the popular acts were it was there were not that many there were only a few record labels and there and a few television networks so the the dispersal of the music was much more limited and now it's um, there's so many different venues and so many and people don't have labels anymore. They don't have record labels. They put out their own records, and it's a very, very different experience now. Um, but I, I feel like there's so much different music uh, that it's really difficult to stay completely current on everything. It would it would be a full time job. Do you think if you weren't working at a show like SNL that you would you would make an effort to specifically say like you know what maybe I don't like this but I'm going to just try to listen to what, what maybe it's not what's popular all the time, but whatever, you know, it has some traction nowadays that's different than what I'm, I'm used to. Well, I, 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 I'm not proud of this, but I don't really listen to that much music anymore. When I'm doing music, I, I, 
I do my own music. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I find that I have a, a limit to how much music input I can, I can accept. Um, so uh, I, I don't go out of my way to listen to music anyhow, which is probably a fault. Um, but I find that I, it, it, it's exhausting because um, when I listen to music, I listen to it for so many different aspects of it. Um, it's not a, it's not simply for pleasure. I, I, I can't help but analyze it, and it keeps my mind so active that it's, uh, it's, it, it can be exhausting. Yeah, I have, I have a lot of trouble, especially with drum stuff, um, since I am a, a, a drummer. That. You know, there are times like I'll, I'll be talking to my girlfriend she'll, and I'll be like stressed out about something and she'll say like, oh, just listen to some music and relax. And the thing is, is a lot of the times if I'm stressed, I can't listen to music because I'm just going to be sitting there thinking like, okay, wait, what is he doing? Why can't I do that? Why am I not doing that? All that kind of stuff. And so I get that that aspect of it that when it's, you know, it's what, it's what you do, it's how you think that it's kind of hard to just sit back and listen to it as someone on the street would hear it, which stinks because as a musician, it would be really nice to hear things completely objectively, don't you think? I, I think as you get older, that that um, that lack of objectivity, you know, the you know, the the pure ex subjective experience of music becomes more and more difficult. Um, when you're young, it's it's everything is new and fresh and it's easier um, and you haven't really tuned into it as much. But but the whole act of listening to music, the whole act of playing music is listening, um, uh, you know, the the you know, what would. I think it's a Thelonious Monk said, um, um, don't listen to me, I'm accompanying you. Um, uh, when, when, um, but, but it's very difficult to be in, in, in a situation where music is being played and not to listen to it with an analytic ask, in an attitude about it. Um, I find that I, I tend to dissect it because I spent so much time in my life trying to understand music and the method for doing that was to to analyze it. Um, so it becomes habitual after after a time, and it's a lot more difficult to listen to things with just a, a totally subjective experience of doing that. Um, mm -hmm. And back when you 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 were young and you were first learning how to play the instrument, uh, you end up studying. You drop out of high school and you end up studying with Bert Wilson. Um, but besides that, you're self educated. In in that period with Bert, were there any specific things that you picked up with him that you think have stuck with you since? It, well, Bert was um, was very generous with me. Um, he let me spend a lot of time in his apartment. Um, Bert was uh, had polio when he was uh, a very young child, and was uh, confined to a wheelchair. And I would run errands for him and help him around out around his apartment. And um, he would play records for me for hours and um, I, invite me to jam sessions. Not so much to play, but to listen with his friends, his friends would come by and bring their instruments up to his apartment and they'd play up there. That's how I first found him as he lived on the block that I lived on. And so I would stand out in front of his apartment and listen. Um, but he talked about music and about ideas and, you know, um, it was illuminating, you know, and it introduced me to a lot of music. Um, and, you know, we, we, um, you know, shared ideas about the instrument. Um, and he wrote a few exercises out for me, um, advised me as to what kind of things to learn. I was interested at the time in learning how to play chord changes and and uh, he gave me some help with that. Um, 
Um, but but a lot of what was happening with my playing was going on with through a lot of very personal, deep, long study hours, you know, where I practiced like incessantly. I used to practice six or eight hours every day. Um, regardless. Did you feel like you had to, or is that just what you just did? You just did it. I, I had to, didn't have anything else to do. Um, and so I devoted myself to, to that. It was, it was what made me feel good. Um, you know, and the, the gradual accomplishment of the, of the, of ability was gratifying. Um, and, 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 uh, I felt better about the world because I was becoming better at, at playing music. Um, at what just, point did, what, what sorry, what were we going to say? That's, that's it. Well, so when is it now that you're, you're doing all this practicing six, seven hours a day, when do these, you know, screamingly high altissimo notes that, you know, you're, you're so well known for, when did that come into play? When did that, you really solidify that, that skill? Well, I feel like I'm still getting better at that. Um, it's it's a tricky thing to do. Um, it, it's it's a lot of um, subtle, you know, physical uh, interaction with the instrument, and and it it can be radically changed by just changing your read, or or having a funny day, you know. Um, so it, it, dialing that in is still something that I'm doing. Um, uh, I, I started doing it really early on. I was confused. Uh, I got my saxophone. There was a, a band director. Her name was Miss Magnuson, and she was a, had fire engine red hair, and <clears throat> and uh, pictures of um, uh, collages of cats on the wall in the orchestra room. Sounds like and, his character. <laughs> was and she she would uh, conduct with a a heavy uh, you know two B. Um, drumstick and banging on the music stand to keep time with the orchestra and with the band and uh she she performed her duties with great fury and and engagement and i was playing clarinet in the in the band and in the orchestra <clears throat> she saw that i kept mooning over the tenor saxophone in the closet and she asked me on a a, a, a holiday break if i wanted to take it home with me and i did and she let me keep it over the summer, which was never done. And uh, um, so I had no lessons at all. I, there was nobody to teach me saxophone. So I, but I've been playing clarinet and there's a crossover between clarinet and saxophone. They, they're same family instruments or single reed instruments. And the fingering system was developed by BAM and Adolf Sachs copied BAM's um, fingering system. So. So a lot of it's the same. The, the clarinet has uh, several different registers, each with different fingerings, and the saxophone has two principal registers with the very similar fingerings. But um, I immediately started playing wrong fingerings uh, because I was trying to play it like a clarinet and also tried to play above the instrument, the, the written range of the instrument, because the clarinet has a third register and fourth register that's, that's part of the teaching that you get very early on. Mm -hmm. When you learn clarinet, you learn harmonics like the the third. It, it overblows in in tw a twelfth, and then it's like a, a, an octave and a third, and then it's an octave and a seventh. It, there's there it, it every other every other um, uh, overtone, and so the fingerings are quite different in each register. But I'm looking for that on the saxophone, and I found it um, by accident. Uh, using something like clarinet fingerings uh, and started to play 
above the horn before I'd even learned how to finger the instrument properly. Um, but but it was because I didn't understand that it didn't go any higher. Really? Were there, well, were there any saxophonists that you were kind of trying to emulate when you were doing that that sound? Well, the popular saxophone player at the time, the only guy with with who was an artist with records was Junior Walker. Um, mm-hmm and the all-stars and um he was on you know still still had records on on soul radio stations uh what does it take um it was a hit song in the late 60s and but i would heard uh shotgun and uh shaken finger pop and all those other songs that he did and he played off he played up up that upper register and king curtis also did to some degree i mean it's not that unusual if you go back and look at the the long list of, of popular saxophone players from the 40s and 50s and 60s. Um, many of them played in you know, upper registers uh, the instrument. Maybe a different approach than I had, but um, it was it was not uncommon at all. Uh, it was, you know, saxophone playing was similar to like electric guitar playing was in the 60s. It was a featured solo instrument. Uh, mm-hmm. The tenor sax was... Uh, on if you get the, i have this record collection called uh, um blowing the fuse it's a german company um bear family records released and it's all things that copyright expired on in europe um and it has like 20 or something songs on each cd and uh, there were like i don't know it was from 1945 to 1960 um and every two out of every three songs has a tenor saxophone solo on it okay there was a there was a huge history of of tenor saxes being the solo, the solo voice in rhythm and blues and and that version of jazz. Uh, and how long after you take that saxophone home for the summer do you actually start playing it out professionally? Um, I I had to get it back when I entered the ninth grade, um, and I got a, another loner horn from that school. And in the fall of the ninth grade, I um, I joined a band called James Levi and the Funk Machine, uh, soul band. I was the only white guy in the band, and it was uh, we were living in the neighborhood, right near the Black Panther headquarters. And I was practicing in this park called Bushrod Park, which was um, North Oakland, you know, kind of ghetto neighborhood. And um, James used to play basketball in the park, and I was I always had trouble finding a place to practice. So uh, he heard me playing uh, and came over to visit with me one day and asked me if I'd play in his band. Um, I was 14. So uh, and so wait, when is it that you actually start making money? And are you when you first start working professionally? I, I made money on that gig. Um, I, that, what, what, when were you able to first like solely pay all of your bills just from working as a musician? Oh, I was about 16. Uh, I was I was playing in a band that that um was opening for Tower of Power in local venues. And um, uh, we had a manager. My manager was Larry, uh, excuse me, Jerry Martini from uh, Sly and the Family Stone. He was a saxophone player uh, with Sly Stone. And um, he decided to be our manager. And we were working, you know, I don't know, two or three times a week um, on a good week. And, And I was playing on the street I had put together a little street band with some friends and um, we were playing uh, for lunch money on the streets and my mom had moved out, left me and my brother in the house. And uh, so we were paying our rent and, um, and buying groceries and stuff like that. Um, 
And were you thinking at that point, you're like, okay, now I'm, uh, now I'm going to start pursuing this as a career for the rest of my life. I, that never, really never crossed my mind. I, I, I wasn't really thinking of it as a, a career move. It was just like a necessity. And I, I realized that, that, um, if I was going to keep playing, I had to have a way to survive and, and gigs were a good way to do it. Plus, I, I just really liked playing with other musicians. It was fun, you know, organizing bands and playing with your friends was like uh, my version of socializing. And, you know, t- talking about, I got to ask you something about Tower of Power because I've heard through the grapevine, and tell me if I'm wrong on this, is the reason that you started working with Tower of Power is because they saw you dancing along to one of their sets. Is that a total bullshit story that I've heard? Or is that is that true? I used to go and dance at their gigs and, um, and that did influence it. Uh, I also sat in with them too. And, and I hung out with them. I, they had a house in East Oakland and I used to go out there and hang out all night with them and stuff. So uh, we were friends. Uh, they knew Bert Wilson and, and I ran into them there as well. Um, and they, they rehearsed only a, two blocks from where I was living at the time. So I, they were rehearsing in a place that was a part-time well, part-time church, um, um, storefront church, um, and and uh, rehearsal hall, and we uh, um, we rehearsed incessantly. But when I joined the band, but I used to go to their rehearsals and hang out and watch them rehearse. So I was like, I was connected. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was, I was like, I was working, working on it, like not, not, not so much to get the gig, but just because I was really interested in what they were doing. Um, I liked the sound of the horn section and I liked the, the, the rhythm section was awesome. I, David Garibaldi was a great drummer to dance to. Um, I love David. I met him a few times. Such a great guy. One of the freaking best drummers I've ever heard in my life. Back then you would go to see a band if, if the drummer made you dance, um, and and he he was great with that um the that you know so so i was attracted to that um i would i would pursue other you know bands that that had the same quality i heard what there was a group called cold blood that i used to go see play and a guy named sandy mckee i think was playing drums with them at the time um a lot of there was a lot of great great bands in the bay area at the time um but uh, I hit the wrong button there for a second. Um, how'd you get the job to, uh, you, you played on Earthquake's second record. That was right before you worked with Tower of Power. How'd you get that job? Uh, I knew Robbie Dunbar. Uh, he was, a, I, I, I stopped attending high school classes in the 10th grade, um, but I, would, I lurked around the, um, the um, practice rooms at school. And um, and the band director there uh, used to hire me to p- play the gigs. He'd give me ten dollars to play the you know the performances and they'd go to the competitions and stuff. Um, and I used to so I would rehearse them at, at the lunch period. And Robbie was in that band, um, uh, and so I knew him from from when I was like fifteen years old. Um, and then I played in bands that were associated with that. It was a, a small group of, of local musicians who played the same venues. I guess that's probably still that way in you know, different places. But there were a few gigs you could do. And we did some frat parties and did um, 
um, you know, crews, uh, uh, like the, what was it, prom parties and things like that, and, and, um, and some nightclubs. And uh, so I was sort of the local, you know, I, you know, I was, there weren't that many rock saxophone players, you know, there were the saxophone players tended to like gravitate towards wanting to be serious jazz musicians. And, and my focus was really playing uh, rhythm and blues and rock and roll. And so uh, I was, they were looking for someone to do something like Junior Walker on the record and they called me up to do it. Yeah. And, you know, talking about you getting hired for things, I've, I've heard you say in the past that Three things of advice you'd give to people is to say yes to most, if not all, opportunities, um, to show up on time, and to not complain. Are those things that you kind of always had innate? Are those just natural traits for you, or are those kind of things that you developed maybe through some, I don't know, negative professional experiences? Um, the saying yes was just necessary because if you didn't, the opportunity presented itself, and you didn't say yes, then then you weren't working. Um, you know, there, there weren't that many opportunities. So whenever one would come along, I'd always agree to it. Um, so it's, you know, the advice is somewhat retrospective. Uh, showing up on time, I habitually on time, but I found that people appreciate that. You know, when, when you show up late, they worry. And I, I, I had like a obsession with, with, with promptness that was, came from, you know, other experiences. Um, um, you know, different people that are sort of, tilt different ways in that respect but i was always um always on time and and i found that people appreciated that and not complaining you know once you get in the situation you, you don't want to upset the people that you're working with by absolutely by sounding like hesitant about it so and you don't have to do it you know like if if if, if it's if it's true unbearable uh wait till a, an opportune moment and gracefully duck out um but and 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 while complimenting the people on your way out the door <laughs> so you don't burn any bridges you don't want to burn any bridges and it's it and it's it there's no reason to it's 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 nice to be important but it's more important to be nice uh, have there ever ever been any times that you look back on and being like i know you said you always showed up on time that was always a thing but have there ever been times where you're like damn i, I should have handled that better um well kind of inverse i i did a gig with um this wonderful, wonderful Haitian singer, Ansi de Rose, um, a, a chanson singer, like balladeer. Um, and it was a really interesting gig. I really loved the gig, but but I showed up on time for the first rehearsal and everybody came in two hours later. Um, and I showed up two hours late the next day thinking that was the right thing to do. And everybody showed up three hours late. So I, 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 I just behaved inappropriately by habit. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so I, 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 I'm not good at, at un, unlearning like habitual behavior like that. I mean, when it serves me well, most of the time I can stick with it, but occasionally you find out that that's the wrong thing to do. Yeah. Um, so, but <laughs> <laughs> those are the exceptions rather than the rule. Maybe, in, maybe in Haiti, it's like that all the time. I don't know. Yeah. So, so now, um, you're working, you're, you said you were working since you were 16, was there any point where you were thinking like, you know, I'm working, but maybe I now I'm starting to consider having a side job as something un unrelated that ever happened to you? Not really. I moved to New York in 81 and couldn't get arrested here, uh, even though I had a pretty good pedigree. Uh, nobody was hiring me. I, I, I did like 
one session a month and occasional gigs. I had this crazy gig that involved um, meeting a bus at Roseland at four in the morning and driving down to North Carolina to do a sound check and a gig and head back to New York. So two 14 hour bus rides and a gig in between. Um, so I was, it was kind of desperation. Um, um, but uh, during that time, my wife was working as a dancer. She was in a modern dance company from, uh, you know, downtown company that had worked with Robert Wilson on the Einstein dances and, and that sort of thing. And they had a, a pretty, you know, successful career as far as modern dance was concerned. And we had a brand new baby and she wanted to keep dancing. So she took me out on the road with, or he, the choreographer took me out on the road to, to, um, to help with the childcare and, and also to run the sound system. But I, I'd learned, um, I'd learned electronic music. I was pretty familiar with mixing consoles. Um, I understood tape machines. And so I took a job uh, for a while as the sound uh, uh, sound person for this dance company. But other than that, um, I don't think I've really ever had a non-musical job, a non-musician job. And that was pretty close. Um, Did you have any shell shock coming to the city? Because like for me, since I moved to New York, I've been fortunate to come in contact with some, you know, incredible musicians. And because and, I'm I'm from a small town in central New York, so coming to New York City, that's like you know going to 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 Oz. Um, what, what town are you from? I'm from a, a, around a city called Utica in central New York. I know Utica. Yeah. Okay. I think yeah. I played in Utica once. Oh, really? Yeah, it was a, a NISCA New York State Council of the Arts uh, tour. And I think that was one of the stops we made. Um, it was uh, the Borneo Horns, my sax trio, um, uh, with a drummer. We had three saxophones and drums. Mm -hmm. We and we did a uh, we we got we won a grant from New York State Council that included playing all over the state. Um, yeah, well, I, I, Utica is a fun place to be, and it's and there are some you know incredible musicians there. And I've actually I've had fortunate when I was a child, they it was more so of a music scene around that area. Um, I know when my, my father was younger, there was, they were bringing in acts all the time. But after, you know, it, no matter how good of a small town you're, you, you're in, there is nothing compared to a place like a, a big city like New York. Um, but you had experience, now you were working so much at, at Wally Hyders in San Francisco that you were meeting people like Herbie Hancock. You know, I didn't have that experience before I moved here. Was there still, even though you met people like that in San Francisco, was there still that shell shock of coming to a city where everyone is just so, you know, incredibly talented? Um, I, I knew a lot of people here before I moved here. It was just that um, I moved it here in a time where, <clears throat> and this sounds crazy now, but work was on the decline. The 70s and the 60s had been so good that work was diminishing. So there was a, there, there weren't a lot of openings for new people since the work was going work was sort of going downhill and my career was sort of going uphill, but I was, and I was impressed by the people I was meeting certainly. Um, but many of them I'd already met um, because I'd been on the road a lot and I'd run into them at sessions and things like that. So I, I, I was impressed, but, but um, I guess what, what, what I found here was in, that was different was um the kind of studio savvy that they have in New York City that's different from Los Angeles and different from the Bay Area. There was a whole 
different kind of uh, rapport and a kind of very quick professionalism. Um, you know, you, there was very little time. Well, a lot of the work, the daytime work in New York at the time was commercials. Um, and they, that was the rule of thumb at the time was records at night, commercials in the daytime because the studio rates were higher in the daytime and the commercial accounts could afford them. And, and the, the rates went down at night. So the, the record companies that had less to pay would, would take those hours. And also musicians that were the leaders on those groups tended to be night owls. So that, that's where, when, when you do that work. So working in the daytime with a, the, a lot of heavyweight jazz musicians was pretty intense, you know, um, but intense not because Intense because of the work ethic and because of the, in Los Angeles, when we did sessions there, it was a much slower pace, you know, um, much more relaxed. There were longer breaks. And in New York, it was like, uh, you know, we got to get this done now. So you walk in, see a chart. I, I would always show up early because I, I, I wasn't always that confident about my sight reading and trying to get the music in front of me and look at it for a little bit before I, I played. But the idea was you would do like a minute long commercial, a 30 second commercial, a 20 second, a 15 and a 10, all within an hour or an hour and 20 minutes with the whole group. And that's but, including learning the music, reading the music down. Learning the music, reading it down. That's including, that's like, that's like a 16 piece ensemble, like, uh, and, and do it without mistakes, you know, because there wasn't, there wasn't an opportunity to go back and fix things. There wasn't enough time for that. So, and all to cut to click track, which was like unnerving, um, uh, you know, and also there was a kind of precision about the articulation and the wind instruments that, that was indicated in the notation, which was unfamiliar to me because uh, dots and dashes are not absolute, don't have absolute meaning. They have, you know, their gestures and they, but the dots and dashes over the notes in New York studio uh, language horn playing language were very specific. A short note was this long, <laughs> a line was this long. And 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 getting getting with that was like a was was an upward climb for me. Um, but but I, you know I figured it out. Um, I had to. Um, and I, I enjoyed it. I, it was it was exciting work on the on a professional level. The music itself was always a little bit um, how can you say cut and dried. Mm-hmm wasn't like you you couldn't like swing your ass off like very often you know like and and there were all sorts of um interesting interactions with the clients the clients were um um you know people who were worked for you know advertising agencies so they were not exactly musical people did you ever any ever have any big disagreements with someone because you're like hey i'm the musician here i, sh I know or you just stick no, to whatever they tell you i would here's my method I, I often would get asked to stick around and play a solo after the session, you know, the improvised part of it and what they call the, the whole of the donut. Um, so there would, that would be like where the announcing would go and the commercial and you'd, you'd fill the donut with a saxophone solo. And uh, they'd ask me to stick around and they'd play it and they'd, they'd say something really strange, you know, like we love it, but can you make the tempo a little bit louder or something <laughs> obtuse like that or uh, <laughs> It was beautifully yellow, but we'd like a more, you know, shade towards green on that. So, um, and and my method of dealing with that was always, oh, I got it. I know exactly what you're saying. Totally understand what you mean. Roll the tape back. Let's do it again. 
Would you change nothing? I would, um, I would play something different, but, but, but with greater confidence, um, you know, that, that, that I, you know, you, if you, if you express confidence to people that are usually it would be somebody, she'd be, um, her first time out working for this agency and you'd have to feel compassion for her because she was like, um, in an in a, in a, an environment she'd never been in before, you know, and dealing with musicians and and trying to show, trying herself to show confidence in 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 what she was doing and people looking on and 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 you know, I had compassion for her, you know, like you know, it could be guys too. It was like it was always a, a hot seat for them, mm-hmm. so to be supportive of them was really important, you know, and I mean, and to the, be fair, being around a bunch of musicians, even as a musician, sometimes can be awful, especially when I, you're a professional setting. I, I, I could tell you stories, but I won't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Why not? You can't, you can't do it. You'll get in trouble. No, I won't get in trouble, but I just like, I, I, I don't feel like it's um, productive to, um, to dish. Um, it's not on the, it's not, it's not professional. It's it's not not only is it not professional, but it's not kind. You know, um, you know, everybody has their foibles, and they, and and there's a everybody has experiences. You know, you don't know what happened to them that day. You know, what was the, what, what maybe they're having a terrible day. You know, <laughs> I've I've had that so many times. Now here's the thing. I'll show you, tell you how crazy I am. There are so many times where I'll be I'll do something that I know I'm like ah I got this I'm, I, I I can do it. And I mess up because of something that happened earlier that day. But every time someone messes up, I have to, it takes me a minute to tell myself like, okay, think about the fact that you do the exact same thing. You have to know that that could be someone else because it's so likely that someone who's great at something or really nice had just a shitty day and then right. everything is terrible and no matter, and they can't help it. And then you're almost the, the jackass for getting mad at him for it. It's always better to be positive, you know, and, 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 you know, support people like, you know, the, the actors at the show have taught me something because um, I've had to be in bits a little bit once in a while, um, very, very infrequently. But, but when, I've been there 36 years. So over that time, I've, I've done it two or three times. And it's such an, an alien thing for me to do to be, a, you know, to participate with in, in a comedy sketch, any, anything other than just playing my instrument. And um, I've I've always said you know I'm I'm nervous I'm, I say don't worry about it we'll take care of you and they they fill in when you miss a line they they grab you when you're supposed to be surprised they so you've you know, had they, you've had speaking roles in sketches very few very few um, but 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 the support level that the actors give to you is is unbelievable you know and and it's like and and I. I think the ethos there is make everybody else look good. Um, you know, I've, I've heard them say that, you know, that the goal is to make the other people in the room look good. And I, I feel like you can do that as a musician or as a, as a human being, you can just uh, make an effort to make the people around you look good. And it's, mm-hmm. everything works better that way. If you can do that. It seems to me just from the few experiences I've had of talking to people at SNL that, it seems like everyone at that show is very positive and wants everyone to be happy because, I mean, the only person that I've talked to um, who I know personally is Jeff Countryman, um, but I've, I interviewed Don King and now you, and then I'm interviewing Josiah Gluck next week. And it seems like everyone has this really positive, supportive attitude. Would you say that's overall pretty correct? 
it's it's a group effort you know and everybody needs to be on board and um and and there's really no room for um for anything other than than you know very positive energy and and there's a thing about the show that's that's interesting I, you work really hard on something for a, a piece of comedy and the sketch gets cut or your bit gets cut or the song that you wrote gets cut or you know something gets you cut. have to be pretty damn resilient to take that it, on a regular it basis becomes really normal after a point and you don't sweat it you don't feel bad about it you you, you know you, you don't think i failed you just realize this is part of the this is just the course of events the way this works you know this is a bigger machine than than me um i i'm i'm just playing a role here and and my role is to be supportive the best way that i can and if it doesn't go the way that i would would make me look the best that's really unimportant you know mm -hmm. it's, it's just doesn't even rise to the level of where you should be concerned about it How'd you land that job originally? Because you move in 81, you come to New York, then you get picked up by SNL in what, 85? 85. Well, how do you go from doing jingles and engineering to that? Um, well, I, 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 did a, um, I did a lot of different things and I, I sort of made some mark. I, I took a tour in 83 with David Bowie, did the Serious Moonlight tour. So and was that I, and Borneo I, horns? That 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 was the, the three saxophone section, yeah, that I spoke about before. Um, uh, Steve Elson and Stan Harrison and I were the horn section for that that tour. Um, and and when I came back, there was I I I had made some connections, and I was working more and was doing a fair amount of recording work. Um, so my name was sort of in the mix of things, you know, it was, um, and also, um, um, I, oh, I'd done this gig with G.E. Smith. I was uh, I, on a Hall & Oates live album, um, live video. I was uh, Eddie Kendricks and David Ruffin from The Temptations um, joined Hall & Oates for some songs and they performed at the Apollo Theater. Uh, and they did mostly Motown music. Um, um, and they needed a horn section. They called me. I booked the horn players, did the recording, played a solo on one of the songs. Uh, one of the songs, I think it got to be one of the singles on the record. They, uh, uh, Daryl and John called me back to do some more gigs. And I did another recording with them. And G.E. Smith was the, the guitar player in the band. Now, G.E. had been married to Gilda Radner at one point. Um, and I think he'd worked on a show that she worked on and, and he, he and Lauren were acquaintances and um, and he got asked to be the band leader for the show. And Howard Shore had come back and Howard used to be in this band called Lighthouse, which was like a Canadian horn band, you know, and we were sort of out at the same time as them with Tower of Power and he was familiar with Tower of Power and somewhat familiar with me and, and um, uh, and GE recommended me to, to do the show and Howard agreed. And that was that, um, uh, I, I showed up at an audition, but I think I sort of already had the gig before that happened. I, my, my sound was right for the show. They've always had this sort of junior Walker-esque, uh, saxophone lead at the front and then the back of the show. And, um, 
and I that was the style I played in, so I was sort of a natural for it. Um, Did they give you a chance to come in and at least sub for a couple shows or watch before you had to come in? No, just did the show. I I I played with um that that spinoff band from Duran Duran with um Robert Palmer. Uh, uh, what are they called? Uh, the um, Power Station. Um, and I'd done the show once with them as a, as guest music, so I'd been there. Um, no, we just did it. Um, uh, it was terrifying. <laughs> I shook the whole show, the first couple of shows. Um, you know, really? You're, well, you're playing for eight million people. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, and it's not. There's no. There's no. Uh, can I punch that in? Can I do that over again? There's none of that, and it's. And it's it's an unforgiving thing, you know. If you if you squeak or 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 play a wrong note, it's like evident to the entire world. And I had a very very um, audible role, and I couldn't sort of conceal myself inside the horn section. I was playing the saxophone solo. So, do you ever go back and watch the replays of those first shows? It's interesting you ask. Um, you know, we're doing the show in a very interesting way these days, um, and I, I've been staying home as much as possible because you don't want any more people in the studio than have to be there. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they provided us with is a way of watching the rehearsals. But in addition to that, there's a, a, a raft of old shows up on the same application. And I went back and looked at some things just because I was curious. I hadn't seen them since I did them a lot of times. And uh, I went back and lo looked at some old shows. It's very, very, very strange thing to do um, to see yourself 36 years ago. Um, playing. Does it make you miserable to listen to yourself back then? Or are you like, ah, I did pretty good? Uh, uh, it, it doesn't bother me that much. Um, um, I, I feel like I do it better now, but I didn't, I, I wasn't, um, I, I was, my intent was right. My, my intention was the correct one, you know, um, um, I, I wasn't very far off base. Um, and it was, it was, again, it was a very natural thing for me to do. It was a style of playing that I've been doing a lot of and, and focused on and was very comfortable with, um, you know, I, I love rhythm and blues saxophone playing. I, I find it, um, exhilarating to me, you know, it's an area of jazz that is much overlooked and, um, and, uh, not mind, and, and to the extent that it could be, it's a really, it's a, it's a beautiful art form. Um, mm -hmm. so wait, so, sorry, keep going. No, I'm sorry. I was gonna, I was gonna say, so you don't have any problem going back and listening, but here, one thing that you're famous for since, you know, in these 36 years, you're famous for never missing a single show, which I'm going to be honest, if there weren't video evidence for every single show, I, I honestly wouldn't believe it. Was there any time there has to have been at least once where you came close to calling a sub or do any particular shows come to mind in that topic no no i i never did i played the show with fevers and um you know uh lots of distressing physical conditions and you know um and you know over the time you, you're going to get sick once in a while but i just i just kept my distance from people and um and made my quietly made my way through the show, uh, um, you know, the best I could, you know, it's, it's, uh, um, it's one of the things that you have to do in showbiz, you know, that, but I, I had experience doing that with Tower of Power. There really were no options most of the time 
with, with Tower of Power. I, I never subbed that show out either. I always, I was, I always, all the gigs we, I made every gig. Um, mm -hmm. I think I missed one gig. My, uh, there was an emergency at home with my wife on our first child, uh, and I had to get out of there. I may have missed a show, um, but I think that I think that's an excusable one. <laughs> I think that's one where everyone's going to be like, "That's totally fine." I, the 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 day our second my daughter was born, uh, I was in the studio uh, doing a uh, overdubbing a solo. I can't remember what the project was, and um, it was the last song I was playing on. And I I'd done like three solos, and the I had left the phone number uh, with. Um, um, you know, of the studio with her. And she called and said she went into, was going into labor. And, um, and I said, that last solo was great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think we're going to go with that one. You're like, guys, yeah. I think, I think the work I already did is totally fine. I think I'm, I think I'm good to go. I think I'm good to go. <laughs> you know, but other than that, I haven't really, you know, bailed on anything. Uh, did you, but in all those shows that you did when you were, you know, had a fever or whatever, were there any that you were like, really you you were you could you could hear it in your sound that you were you were struggling i i don't know i haven't gone back to listen and i w didn't make careful notes so i wouldn't necessarily be able to tell you know um uh, I, I i can't remember um i mean th that's 702 shows um so far jesus knock on wood um yeah uh the the and it's a lot, and it's over 36 years. It's a lot to remember. Um, and I don't remember the guest music from four shows ago. So um, um, it's, 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 it, it's difficult, you know. I, and people always ask, you know, was there, you know, a great moment in the show? And it, there were, but I seldom remember things. Um, you know, it, it's, it's part of a continuum. Mm-hmm. What point do you become the music musical director for the show? Um, see, GE left in '95, and um, I took it over with Cheryl. My my job at the time was, as it is again, is principally uh, directing the band. Um, and by that, I, I don't do that even all by myself. Uh, I, I'm playing the saxophone, so it's very hard for me to conduct and play at the same time. Liam Pendarvis, one of the other music directors, does most of the conducting. Um, and we all we all contribute music to it. Eli Brueggemann is uh, sort of the point man for sketch music. And we all participate in those things. But uh, I, I'm back to doing uh, mostly, you know, uh, dealing with the band but i and i oversee the department um i i started it when ge left cheryl hardwick and i were the was the team then and she was doing most of the sketch music and i was doing most of the band writing um and i i, I write most of the commercial break stuff and the arrangements for the opening theme and things like that and so um, you are you solely responsible for doing those rearrangements just you go in and say, this is how we're going to do the, the, the theme for this season? Yes, pretty much. Yeah. Okay. W what do you do when you come to go do that? Because the original Howard Shore music is very similar to the theme now. And if, and if they, even though they're all different songs, they kind of blend in. Do you have any particular things when you go to rearrange it that you say like, this has to stay, but this can change and it won't, 
you know, sound disturbing to to the average viewer. They won't say this. Oh, this is a completely different theme song. Well, there, there's a verse and there's a bridge, and um, and the chord changes for the verse and the bridge stay the same, with only minor modifications. Um, so that's what you're hearing. You're hearing the you know it 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 moves between two different keys. It starts in G and it goes to uh, it goes to B flat. Um, um, and 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 then goes back again, and I've kept that more or less the same. Uh, we we modernized it. Uh, we added in a, a, a loop track, you know, like um, is that like all the little hi hats, like the shit like that in the background, stuff like that. There's like some synth things. There's there's like some um sound effects stuff there's um you know backward symbols and things like that and um uh some some uh stutter sounds and things like that that uh and and i i i double the horns with synth horns um to sort of just they're they're mixed sort of back far enough that you hear the horns predominantly but they provide sort of a a flangey sort of spread to the horn sound. Um, uh, you know, it's a little, it's more, it's more enhancement than it is replacement. Um, um, and the, and it, and it, it, it does sort of bring it into contemporary music production, you know, world. Um, mm -hmm. uh, all, all the acts, most of the acts that do the show travel with uh, backing tracks of some sort. Uh, you know it's pretty standard pop music you know the country acts don't all do it um some of the uh, sarah Borales didn't do it when she did the show you know people who have come from you know uh, you know more acoustically oriented um styles of music tend to stay away from it but but you know but it does it's sort of an earmark of the of the you know 21st century production style um, do you cue the are you the one who starts the click that cues in the intro no sean pelton the drummer does okay um, have, have you ever had any you know like catastrophic technical failures because i know you guys you guys use cue cards because that's one of those things you don't it's one less variable of something going wrong have you ever had that happen specifically with the the click or the intro they use cue cards because the script changes between dress rehearsal and air and there's no way that you'd be able to do that without that um, <laughs> um the that we i don't i don't know maybe once we played without the track because something happened to the button or something i don't know we can always play it live you know it, it's not it's uh it, we're, we're we're a live band um so it, it, it wouldn't be catastrophic if it happened but but it doesn't sean is amazing like he's so uh organized you know his his drum kit is so organized his pedal layout is so organized his his you know he's he's a hyper organized guy and, and you kind of need that to be a drummer i think um absolutely there's so many things you have to pay attention to it's like people don't understand how complicated it is to play a drum set it's pretty complicated there's all the you know all the hardware has to be set up just right and 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 you know there's so many individual elements that can go wrong with it and you have to keep backup parts you have to have a spare clutch for your hi-hat you have to have drum heads in case something busts you have to have a backup bass drum pedal you know but he's like that he's got everything backed up every different kind of way and 
It's an incredibly impressive job on his part. Ah, uh, he's very impressive. Uh, yeah, at, at what he does. He's like again, highly organized guy. You know, besides the fact that you're not in the studio all the time because of all the new COVID protocol, how have you guys been adapting to that? Because I, I noticed that uh, your percussionist, Valerie, she's over in 6B, which is Fallon's studio, and they're wiring her in. Was there a big adjustment period before this this new season where you guys had to get used to having to play sort of remotely? There was a very long technical rehearsal that proceeded two Saturdays before the first Saturday where we were, you know, live. Um, I... Uh, it took a lot of effort. Uh, Valerie was uh, really instrumental in this because she she became our COVID um, emissary between the musicians union and and us and the and the studio. And we had to um, we had to come up with protocols that would work. And and I had this idea of using it. I didn't know where it would be, but another floor, because I know that there are fiber optics between all the floors and we're using um, um, uh, very contemporary um, wiring system for 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 the studios. And I knew that the, in, the different control rooms, occasionally the, a show will have to be done from it. Uh, the mix room will have to be done We'll, we'll need to be in a different location than than the show is for for various reasons, and because I've talked to the engineers about that, so I knew that they were wired in some way so that the preamps were all connected together in, in a way that you could get access to them from another studio. So I assumed that the studios themselves would would have connections to the different control rooms as well, and I I got on the phone and um, talked to um, um, Chris. Co- uh, Costello cause our our uh, um, monitor mixer and told him what I was trying to do and he communicated and we, I talked to Josiah and I talked to Jay Vicari as well and and found out that there was a way we could wire up the the two, two different floors and they put it they decided to put us in the in old six uh, B which I think is uh, what's where Fallon was doing the shows before. And um, and and we we needed enough space to put twelve feet between each of the horn players, with along with these uh, plexiglass shields. So that was the only room that was, I think, big enough for all of that. Um, and and then we did this very long tech rehearsal. We have <clears throat> we're wired so that we can, there's spy cameras that I can watch them and they can watch me. There's a couple cameras on them. There's cameras on me. There's cameras on Leon. Um, and and we we have split screens where where we where, where we can visually address each other, and and then I have a, a new pedal for my talkback mic so I can talk to them downstairs. Uh, but it's it it felt a little strange at first, but musically now it's very cohesive. You know, it's it's like doing a it's like doing a gig in a studio with a lot of gobos in between you. You know, it's like. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's being studio musicians again. I, I miss them being on stage a lot because it's very weird to hear a trombone solo coming from downstairs and and not seeing a trombone player on stage. Um, and and I, I sort of look around behind me to see where you know where I'd normally cue something or or sort of play along with something, and there's nobody there. Uh, <laughs> but it it. Um, it's worked out pretty well. Uh, it, it was just a very long tech rehearsal and then and then some adjusting after that. 
Well, let's hope that hopefully if this vaccine comes in, everything can get back to normal and you don't have to be watching people on screens and all of that. Yeah, that's going to be a thing. Um, yeah, it's 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 not it's not ideal, but but we're making it work. Um, yeah. So wait, I, I have something to ask because I wanted to ask you some specific saxophone stuff. But if I since I'm not a saxophone player, if I tried to ask them, it would probably be half asked because I wouldn't know what I'm talking about. So I asked my buddy Augie Bello, who you, you've spoken to. And he has oh. a good following on Instagram. And I said, hey, I said, Lenny's coming on my podcast. Can you ask your, your fans of people or uh, any questions they have for you? So I have a, a few questions from some users that are more sax oriented that I think will be a little more genuine than if, than if I did it. But this user, B-C-H-E-Z-N-J, I don't know how you say that. Uh, they said, do you still use blue box bass clarinet reeds? I do. Three and a half strength Van Doren blue box bass clarinet reeds. Okay. Uh, then Annie Kosa, sorry if I said that wrong, uh, says advice or exercises to help with Altissimo. Uh, the Sigurd Rasher book is the best book. And all those exercises in that book are, are preparatory exercises for playing Altissimo. And the fingerings aren't terrific, but they're not terrible either. Uh, they're good for like an older uh, American-made alto saxophone. Um, but but the the fingerings are the least of your problems. The overtone exercises are really good, and it's what I used. Have you ever considered writing a book of your own, or have you? And I missed it. Um, there's an uh, there's a a, a book uh, that I have a chapter in. I think it's called Lessons with the Greats or something like that. Um, I can't remember all who was in it. Um, uh, I think Hubert Laws has a chapter on flute playing in it, um, and I don't remember the publisher's name right offhand. But 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 I think you'd find it if you looked my name up on Google. It and um, it it has some some method information in it. Um, okay. Now, I talking about googling yourself. I know that you you you're not a big social media guy right you kind of try to stay away from that is that is that's an intentional thing that you kind of try to lay low i yes i i there's like three reasons why i don't do it one one it i i know from talking to my friends who do it that it takes a fair amount of time and i i find that especially when i'm working that i don't have very much time so i don't really want to add a, a necessary activity in there um Another reason is that um, uh, it, it's, it seems unnecessary to share all, all you know, what, what gets shared on, um, I, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, and um, let's see, what's my third reason? <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I think, I think if, if, if you only have two, I think that's understandable. Yeah, I, I, I don't. Uh, I, I don't feel any great need for it, you know. Um, I, I, I'm probably it's probably a mistake. Um, I, I, I've been it, from a work standpoint. There's probably things I could get done or do if I was doing that, you know. But, but I found that like I've done enough gigs and I have enough gigs. I'm not looking for work, you know. I, I yeah, it's not that, like you're it's not like you're struggling struggling to work. So it's not like you got to be on on Twitter right, all the I, time. I, I talked to Augie about it and, and you know, he, he has an amazing Instagram thing going and he, he makes, he's turned it into a whole business, you know, it's incredible. Uh, it's really incredible. And he's a, he's, a, he's an amazing player. Um, uh, 
Um, and and I, I think if I were if I were him, I would do the same thing if I were in his situation. The version of it that I did when I was young was was go out and hang out at clubs and talk to musicians and and, you know, ask if I could sit in and, you know, get opportunities like that and get in front of the public that way. You know, but it was a much more immediate thing. I find that my preference for socializing is to be in the same room with people whenever possible. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I like the telephone, uh, but I prefer <laughs> a landline over a cell phone. And, um, yeah, I, I'm 66 years old. It's like um, I know that's like, you know, that's not, not an excuse. <laughs> it, has, it really just hasn't been that necessary. No, I mean, I get it. I think that's a fair excuse because there's definitely things that I you know, I'm, I'm 22. Am I 22? Yeah, 22. There are things that I think I've, I find normal that in hindsight are kind of weird. Like, like you said, the idea of people just writing down like unnecessary stuff and putting it online, that's stuff that although I don't, tr- I don't really do that. It's not something that upsets me because I'm so used to it because that was what I was born into. And I grew up through that whole internet age in the beginning of Instagram and Twitter. But I think, you know, age is definitely an honest factor that can that is understandable for most people because there's some crazy stuff online that makes no sense why anyone would want to read it or watch it or listen to it, you know? Well, everybody has their own perspective, you know, and, and my perspective is born out of the, the experiences that I've had. Um, uh, and it's, um, it's, 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 there's room in the world for all of that. I, I I understand the desire to like I, I I can't say I've never read a YouTube comment on something that's up online, but but I find the trolling to be offensive, and and unnecessary and um, and not very nice. <laughs> that's one hundred percent for sure. And and I find that like like you know my sense of the commentary when it's positive is like well that was a nice thing to say but like where's it coming from? Like, who's this person that made that comment? Like, you know, what's the context for it? You know, do they really know what they're talking about? I, I, I used to, you know, the, you know, my recordings and things and concerts I'd done would get reviewed from time to time. And, and I would, you know, be dismayed at what the, the reviewer had come away with. Uh, And someone told me, um, well, you know, the only qualification you have to be a music critic for the New York Times is that you're a, new, a music critic for the New York Times. <laughs> no other, there's no other con- and and that's it. Same with with random humans, that's even more the case. Like you don't have to be qualified to make a comment. You don't have to know anything. You can just make a comment. And I think a lot of that goes on. And I think it it can be it can be daunting for people. Uh, I, I I'm sure it keeps people from from trying things sometimes for fear of 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 getting trolled. You know. Have you ever read anything about yourself that got in your head for more than just a, you know a couple minutes of reading it? Uh, no, I, 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 I've been mystified by a few things, but not, but not, not really. Um, um, no, uh, I, I thought there was a, um, um, uh, there was a comment on uh, on I played on the, the uh, Taylor Swift's appearance at, on the show i don't usually i don't often play on on um with with the guest music but uh, she had i guess asked for me to do it and i did it and i enjoyed doing it she was great she was really really good um 
And um, one of the comments online was, uh, it looks like a big friendly hobbit. And I thought that... <laughs> or something that's the, like that. That's the best. That's the, the only thing they thought to say was that. I know. And I thought, that's mysterious. <laughs> <laughs> Did you go back to the studio and tell everyone or to keep that one to yourself? I... I don't, no, I didn't broadcast it. <laughs> See, I I know that anytime I've gotten anything negative, and I know especially with 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 Augie, he'll we'll come over and he'll get something, and he'll be like, "Look at look at the, look what this person said." It'll just be something hilariously mean for no reason. So I know I don't know if they're the type of person that likes to kind of joke around. An, People do that. I heard the interview the other day with Franny Leibowitz on uh, Terry Gross's show, um, and and she was saying that she took a job working for Andy Warhol in the on his magazine the interview magazine and she and she, she only would take the job uh, one stipulation was that she had to be the, the the movie critic and that she only wanted to review bad movies because she wanted to be able to say mean things about people um <laughs> that were appropriate um uh-huh. so so um i think there's a certain thrill that people get and 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 it's a lot easier to be witty when you're being mean than it is to be witty when you're being nice so like point. from the from the standpoint of like a critic or a writer there's a, it's a juicier role to play being the the adversary than to being the the supporter yeah and um, i'd be a liar if i said that i've never seen something that in my head have thought something mean about. I think that all the time, but there's never been a point in my life where I thought something and I went, you know what? I'm going to write it and comment it. I never even got to within a football fields of, the, of a distance of that idea. I've thought those things, but there, there's some, there's a special type of person who just says, you know, this is what I'm thinking. And I, I, th- I think everyone wants to hear it, even though it's just embarrassingly mean almost. Uh, you know, this this world we live in is is um, a torturous place for a lot of people. I I, I I feel for people who are too strongly connected to the internet. Um, it, it it's it, we can see just from this last go around politically, what what kind of devastation can be you know can be wreaked that way. I I hope I hope we've learned our lesson a little bit and we can you know move towards a kinder um, gentler way of dealing with each other. We're definitely going to have an interesting day on the on the twentieth. I'm, I don't know if I'm excited, but I'm I'm anxious to see what happens. Yeah, I'm curious to see what happens. Uh, you know, it's it's a hard 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 to to be, you know, you know, terribly engaged at this point because it's it's sort of overdone. But um, yes, I I wonder what the show's going to do. We're going to have to come up with some interesting stuff. Um, yeah, no, no matter what happens, it'll make a a really damn good cold open. <laughs> it will. It's been it's been a, a a very interesting period working at the show. You, I, I keep running into people who say, "It's just, I'm so grateful that you guys were doing that." You know, um, and and I, I, it's moving to hear that from people. I I don't usually experience that, but I I think that that the show was providing something for somebody at least. That I think because we were actually doing something live, you know that that, and and getting up there and doing it, uh, it maybe maybe it wasn't even what the shows were about, but it was it was the fact that we were doing something in this pandemic that 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 you know enlivened people, and I think that's a very positive thing. Um, I can I can vouch for that one hundred percent because when I was a kid, SNL was a it was a huge part of my childhood. We had all the best subs, the Christmas DVDs, all that. My family and I would always watch watch SNL. 
And then when I got older, kind of stopped watching it. Not, I like just, you know, kind of faded away. And then when I got probably about eight months ago, they, I started watching a little bit of the, you know, the old clips. And I was like, man, you know what? It sucks that this, this coronavirus is happening because now that I have the opportunity and I really want to watch it, it, it's not there. And then you guys did the at home episodes and now, you know, watch those and you're thinking like, man, I just can't wait for everything to be live again because there's all this stuff that's coming out. And there's some, you know, great content, all the, all the late night shows, Fallon, Kimmel, they're doing stuff from home. But when you guys came back and it was finally freaking live again, it was just, it was like a breath of relief to finally see something that was being produced at a level before all the shutdowns and it was live and there was no, it wasn't filmed on someone's phone. And now, Every Saturday night is like, uh, you know, Saturday is my favorite time of the week because I get to wait for that to be live, you know? Yeah. And it was, I, got, I can't tell you how much of a relief it was for me to play with my friends again. You know, it's like a whole summer of like, of like not playing any gigs with anybody, you know, like, you know, playing saxophone, you know, a wind instrument is like a liability at this point, but they've made it safe for us to do it there. And, and, and we can, you know, we can actually play together in the same same audio space and it's it's just an amazing experience it's so much it was such a relief it's such a joy absolutely well lenny i want to say thank you so much for coming on today i really really appreciate it thank you for taking out time today well thanks for inviting me i appreciate it thank um, you um and to everyone who listened thank you so much for being here we're going to be live again uh what's today sunday we'll be live next friday at 2 p.m with jackie the joke man martling um so i hope to all see you there lenny stay safe have a good day everyone listening i'll see you next week